Well, I'm excited this morning because we are jumping into a brand new series called The Blessed Life. The Blessed Life. And this series is actually the first installment of a much larger series that we're going to navigate in and out of over the next eight to nine months called The Uncommon Kingdom. The Uncommon Kingdom. And what this is going to be over the next eight or nine months is a deep dive into the greatest sermon ever preached, and that is the Sermon on the Mount. But we're going to be looking at that first installment uh, over the next few weeks called The Blessed Life. And we're calling this larger series uh, The Uncommon Kingdom because when you read the Sermon on the Mount, what you discover is the entire sermon, which by the way is three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The entire thing is about the kingdom of God. It is the king of the kingdom, that's Jesus Christ, teaching the people in the kingdom how to live as citizens of the kingdom. That's what the whole sermon is about. The king of the kingdom teaching the citizens in the kingdom how to live as people of the kingdom. It is the king sharing his heart with his people. And I want you to just think about that for a moment. You know, in an ordinary kingdom, the common people would never be able to have that kind of conversation with the king. They would rarely even see the king. The king was someone who made demands of them, who told them what to do and what not to do, but they had no connection with, no relationship with. That's an ordinary kingdom, but Jesus is doing a new thing. He's building an uncommon kingdom. This king wants to know and be known by his people, so much so that the uncommon Jesus, holy, set apart, the uncommon became common like us so that we, the common citizens, might have an uncommon life. Isn't that beautiful? That's what he's done for us. And that's the lens as we begin to navigate into the Sermon on the Mount. That's the lens I want us to see the sermon through over this series and the weeks and months ahead. So what does it mean to be uncommon? You know, as I've thought about it this week, there were several things that kind of came to mind, things that are uncommon for us, right? Things that we rarely see or experience. I've got a few of those. Uh, here's one, the four-leaf clover. How many of you legitimately, not cheating, have actually found a four-leaf clover? Who has found one of those before? Okay, so the, we find those. I'll tell you, I would find three-leaf clovers, and I would tear one of the leaves so that it looked like four and tell people I, I had found four. Uh, I did that all the time. So four-leaf clover, here's another. The $2 bill, who remembers those things, right? Y'all are so old. Those, <laughs> if you ever use that to buy anything, you're old. That's okay. I did too. We're old together, all right? That's a real thing, kids. That used to exist, the $2 bill, right? Here's another one. That's Haley's Comet. Very uncommon, very rare. You see it about every 75 years. Here's something else I think we may rarely see. The Cowboys win a Super Bowl. We're never going to see that again. Not ever. We may spend the rest of our lives and never see that. Look, those guys look sharp, but that trophy behind them, that's uncommon. We may never get to see that rascal. <laughs> These things are uncommon, but listen, so is the life of those who are in the kingdom of God. And 
I don't know if you've ever really spent time in the Sermon on the Mount, but I, I love the Sermon on the Mount. Um, what I've discovered over the years is that no, how, no matter how much time I spend there or how many times I read it, it is a deep, deep well of truth and of knowledge and of joy and of faith building. Um, and and it, it's, it's a well I'll never get to the bottom of. I love places like that in Scripture. And the way I want us to approach this sermon is we are getting to engage the most majestic sermon from the greatest preacher that ever lived. That's how I want us to engage this thing. The most majestic sermon from the greatest preacher. And I think as we navigate these three chapters of Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we will uncover some of the most inspiring, um, nourishing, faith-building, life-giving, joy-building verses in all of the Scripture. But we will also find some of the most intimidating and challenging verses in all of the Bible. They're inspiring because they are the king teaching us how to have a happy life in him, how to be blessed, how to live in a way that pleases him and find satisfaction and contentment in our life. So they're inspiring, but they're intimidating because Jesus says, in order for me to give you that life, I have to teach you what to do with your anger. I've got to teach you what to do with your pride and with your lust and with your anxiety. I gotta teach you what to do with that judgmental spirit that you have, and I've gotta teach you how to treat love and love one another, and what to do with your greed. And so if we'll lean into those moments that are intimidating and challenging, what we will find on the other side is that rich, faith-building, joy-giving blessing from the Sermon on the Mount. And, uh, this sermon is not a list of do's and don'ts. I think we approach God's word so often as, as the list of do's and don'ts, right? Do this, don't, don't do that. That's not what this is. I want you to see this as an invitation from the king um, to come and live an uncommon, blessed life. So grab your Bible and go with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Before we just jump in... Uh, the context for the Sermon on the Mount is really important. It, it's easy for me to have this picture of Jesus on the side of the mountain, right? And his disciples are there and, and um, the, the other people are there uh, ready to hear him teach. But the truth is the events leading up to the Sermon on the Mount are really, really important. They give us context and context gives clarity. They help us understand the weight and the significance of this moment with Jesus. What do I mean? I mean, we need to have in mind that the book of Matthew breaks 400 years of silence from God. From the end of Malachi to the beginning of Matthew, there's 400 years of silence from God to his people. And yet, God had promised he was going to send a Messiah. He had promised he was going to send a king and a redeemer. And for 400 years, the people are waiting in silence for the fulfillment of that promise. And now, 400 years later, the book of Matthew speaks. And what is the primary theme of this book? It is this, the king is here. If you had to put a banner over the book of Matthew, the banner would be 
The kingdom of God has come, and Jesus is the sovereign king. That's the banner over the whole book, declaring the kingdom of God. That's why when you read Matthew chapter 1, you see this lineage that Matthew walks through uh, leading to Christ. He goes all the way back to Abraham, and he talks about the begats, right? Abraham begat so-and-so, and he works his way through Isaac and Jacob. Why? Because the promise was given to them that God would send a Messiah and a greater sacrifice, and he navigates through the royalty of the kings of David and Solomon. Why? Because he wants to affirm Jesus as royalty, so that when he gets to, this is Jacob, the father of Joseph, the, the, the husband of Mary, the mother of Christ, he is saying, this is the king. From Abraham to now, he's fulfilled the promise and the king has come. So Matthew presents him as the king, but he also wants us to see him as the Messiah, the long-awaited redeemer and deliverer of God's people. If you look at Matthew chapter 4, the very last verse that takes us into Matthew chapter 5. You know, a lot of times those chapter breaks, those weren't a part of the original writing. Those were added around 1500 uh, AD, and uh, they, they get them right most of the time. This is one of those places where you don't have to stop reading from 4 to 5. You just flow right, the narrative just continues right into the next chapter, because look at what it says in verse 25 of Matthew 4. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. And seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. There's a very interesting phrase here that I have spent almost all my life blowing right by and never never recognizing for what it was. And that's the phrase, he went up on the mountain. Something really special there. Here's why it's important. Because in Exodus chapter 19, we see the exact same phrase in reference to Moses when he went up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. You say, well, Pastor Matt, why does that matter? Because Matthew is in his presentation of Jesus as the deliverer, as the redeemer, he is showing that the greater Moses had come. You see, Moses had escaped um, the hands of Pharaoh when Pharaoh murdered hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of children. As a little boy, Moses escaped that. Jesus had escaped the hands of Herod when he tried to murder hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of children in order to get rid of this king. Moses went up on the mountain. Jesus went up on the mountain. Moses went and heard from God and then spoke with authority from God. Jesus heard from God and then spoke with authority from God. What's the point? The greater Moses is here. That's what he's presenting to the people as he begins to teach. Now, now we need to see that the king sits down to teach. And I, I just want us to take a second and, and be sure we have this in our mind. I want you to have this picture. I want you to hold it there. Jesus is up on the side of this mountain, which really wasn't like the Rocky Mountains. You need to think more like a, you know, a rolling hill. He's up on the side of this mountain. And his disciples come to him. 
which by the way is the way it happens with a rabbi. A rabbi sits and the disciples come to him, right? He sits and they come to him. And then beyond those disciples, there are hundreds, maybe thousands of people, the great crowds that we read about, people who maybe had heard him preach something they had never heard, which was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or maybe they saw him um, heal a disease or make a lame person walk or give sight to a blind person or cast out an unclean spirit. They may not even know why they're there. All they know is there's something about that guy. And I'm drawn to be near him. Do you have that picture in your mind? Every eye is fixed on Jesus, and Jesus begins to teach them. And over the next three chapters, he begins to illuminate what life looks like for those in the kingdom of God. So this morning, I want us to take a 30,000-foot view of this entire sermon. Don't worry, I'm not going to preach the whole Sermon on the Mount. 30,000-foot view of this entire sermon. And I want us to take away four big truths that we're going to find about, the, about kingdom life from the Sermon on the Mount. Here's the first truth I want us to see. The kingdom life is an uncommon life. The kingdom life is an uncommon life. Over and over again throughout the Sermon on the Mount, we hear Jesus teaching in a way and teaching a way of living that is completely foreign to the people listening to him. See, up until now, they had been taught that what really mattered, what mattered to God, what God was most concerned with was what you do, right? Act good, do good, do this, don't do this. It was all about the outward behavior. But here's Jesus on the side of the mountain, and he is going to completely flip that economy upside down. And he begins to teach a standard of living that is less focused on what we do and infinitely more concerned with the condition of our hearts. What do I mean? I mean, six times, just in chapter 5, starting in verse 21, going through verse 48, we see a very important phrase. Six times Jesus says this, You have heard it said, but I tell you. You have heard it said, but I tell you. You have heard it said, meaning this is the old way of thinking. This is what you were taught. This is what you were told is the most important thing. This matters. This is what God cares about. This is the old standard of living. But I tell you something new, something different. I'm revealing what God really wants. Let me give you some of those examples just to kind of have our mind wrapped around this. Matthew 5, starting in verse 21, he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Do you see that? You've heard it said, don't do the outward thing of murder. But I tell you, it's about the inward feeling of anger, right? Matthew 5, 27. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery. You think it's about the outward act. I'm telling you it's about the inward heart. Matthew uh, verse 38, you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the evil one. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him also the other. One more. 
You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. What is he doing? What's he doing? He is undoing, he is obliterating generations of thinking about what life for the people of God should look like. Jesus is teaching that the kingdom life is an uncommon life. It moves beyond the natural. It moves beyond what man sees and what man says matters. It moves beyond the external action and deals with the internal condition of the heart. In other words, Jesus says the kingdom of God isn't just about right behavior. It's about right motives. Oh, I don't know if I like that part, right? It isn't just about what you see me do on the outside. Which leads me to this question. Who can live like that? Who can live like this? Who can live always having the right motives? Because here's what I know about me and what you know about you. I can manage the outward behavior. I can manage what you see. But that motive in my heart is unmanageable. Why? Because Jeremiah 17 says, the heart is deceitful. It is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can know it. That's us. That's our heart. And while the Sermon on the Mount teaches us that the kingdom life is an uncommon life, it also reveals that on our own, that life is impossible. It's impossible. We, can't, we need something outside of ourselves. We need something greater than us so that when Jesus sits down and says, man is looking on the outside of your behavior, but I'm looking at your motive, what he's doing is he is pointing to a life that can only be found in him. So let me ask you a question. Are you trying to manage behavior? Are you trying to simply manage what is seen on the outside, hoping that no one ever really sees what's going on in the heart. I, can I tell you, the life that Christ has for you is not meant for you to live that way. He has called you to an uncommon life. The heart matters most, and that's the, split, that's the space, that's the work, that's the area that only Jesus can get at. So, the kingdom life is an uncommon life. Here's the second thing I think we see. The kingdom life demands an uncommon righteousness. Look at Matthew 5 and verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to do what? To fulfill them. I've come to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then he says something mind-blowing, for I tell you, unless your righteousness 
exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, I haven't come to abolish the law. That's what the people wanted him to do, right? They wanted him to come in and just destroy this measure that had been laid on them by the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees so that they could be free from it. And Jesus said, I'm going to set you free from it, but it's not by abolishing it. It's by fulfilling it, for, by doing for you what you could never do on your own. And then he says in verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Listen, to those that were listening right there, to the disciples and to those Pharisees that were gathered around him, that was absolutely mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. Those words would have seemed like nonsense, to be honest with you. Here's why. Because for everybody gathered around Jesus, the Pharisees were the standard of righteousness. The Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and the scribes, they were the ones who set the standard of righteousness and told everyone else how to live righteously. And Jesus looks at them and says, unless your righteousness is higher than that, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. What a hopeless moment. What a moment where they had to go, well, then I'm out. I can't do that, right? The problem was the righteousness of the Pharisees was built on the external. It wasn't built on the heart. And Jesus is calling the people in the kingdom of God to a new and better and higher and uncommon righteousness. See, the Pharisees had all kinds of ways of getting around the intentions of God's word. What do I mean? I mean, they would harbor hatred and anger in their heart, bitterness in their heart toward their neighbor, but because they didn't actually physically harm them, they would still call themselves righteous. They would lust after their neighbor's wife, but because they didn't physically commit adultery, they called themselves holy. They would swear by things, but as long as they didn't swear by the wrong things, they would still say they were people of integrity. But that is nothing more than an external righteousness, and it is less than what Jesus requires. Now, it's easy to pile on the Pharisees. It's easy to pick on them. But the truth is, we have that same mindset, don't we? We have that same mindset. We in one hand, we maintain a hatred toward our neighbor or a bitterness toward our family or a, a jealousy toward our coworkers, and all the while believing that we're okay as long as no one knows. I'm okay as long as those things that I feel inside don't cause me to do something outside that people can see. But that is not an uncommon righteousness. That is a self-made righteousness. And that's not what Jesus came to give us, amen? David Platt said this, self-justification 
and good appearances are not what Jesus came to do for us and in us. That is not saving people from their sins. He came to give us a righteousness that works its way all the way down to the heart and then ushers forth in love and purity and holiness. These are the new attitudes Jesus is producing in his people by the Holy Spirit. What's the point? You cannot achieve uncommon righteousness like that apart from Christ. But, thank God, we have been given in Christ what is called an imputed righteousness. Imputed meaning it's been accredited to us. It's been laid over us on our account. It's been offered up to us. It's been ascribed to us. We have an imputed righteousness that is not our own. Paul talks about it in Romans 5 verse 19 when he says, for as by the one man's disobedience, talking about Adam, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, Jesus, the many will be made what? Righteous. Why? Because it's imputed to us in Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this is a banner verse for our church. Paul says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. It has been imputed to us. Kingdom life demands uncommon righteousness and that is only possible in Jesus Christ. Here's the third thing I think you need to see and that's this. The kingdom life requires an uncommon choice. It requires an uncommon choice. So here, here are the disciples. There are the hundreds, maybe thousands of people being taught this new way of thinking, this new kind of living, this new standard of righteousness. And what are they supposed to do with it? Jesus tells them and us that we have a choice to make Look at what he says in, at, at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jump to Matthew 7, verse 24. So this is the very end of this teaching with Christ. Jesus says this, Matthew 7, verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Jesus is looking at all these people that are gathered around. He's saying, you have a choice to make. It's an uncommon choice. You can hear this teaching that I've given you, this new way of thinking, this new uncommon righteousness, this new standard of living. You can hear this and you can ignore it. And in, in ignoring it, you become a fool, a fool who builds his life on the sand. And then when the waves come, when the pressure comes, when the stress and anxiety starts to press in on that life, it's going to crumble because all it was built on was your best. Now, that life may have looked real good. The house built on the sand probably looked really sharp. Does your life just look good? 
right? He said, or you can make the uncommon choice. You can hear these teachings of mine, and you can choose to do them. And in doing them, you build your life on the rock of Jesus Christ. And bless the Lord, he didn't tell us in building our life on the rock, the wind's not going to blow, the flood's not going to come. No, he said, the flood's still going to come. That pressure's still going to be pushing in and grinding in on your life, trying to tear it down. But when you build it on the foundation of this new way of thinking, when you make the uncommon choice, it can press, it can push, the wind can blow, the flood can come, but your house is going to stand because you built it on the foundation of Jesus. That's the uncommon choice. Look just a few verses ahead of that last bit of Matthew 7. Look at verse 13 and 14 of Matthew 7. Jesus really illuminates what this choice is for us and why it's difficult, why it's uncommon. In verse 13, he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. It's uncommon because it's not easy. It's uncommon because there's a cost to it. It's uncommon because it may cause you to stand out. It's uncommon because it may cause you to be left out. It's uncommon because it's going to cause you to move against the grain of the world. And Jesus says, yes, exactly, exactly. It's going to cause you to move against the grain. Why? Because Jesus says, I didn't come to make you look like the world. I didn't come to make you comfortable in the world. I've called you to be uncommon, holy, set apart, building a new kingdom, setting a new standard of living. Causing all men and women to see the glory of the light of Jesus Christ and find him irresistible because of what they see in you. That's the uncommon choice, right? Kingdom life is an uncommon life. It requires an uncommon righteousness. It demands an uncommon choice. Here's the last thing I want you to see. The kingdom life leads to uncommon happiness. <laughs> uh, thank you, Lord. To uncommon happiness. When you read the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, those first 10 or 11 verses, what we call the Beatitudes, right? when you read that, you find a word that appears over and over and over again. And what's that word? Blessed blessed over and over again. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Nine times Jesus uses this word, Bless, and that word implies many things. It can imply um, uh, approved of, accepted, loved, but right here, I think it primarily means happy. Happy. And this is not some silly surface level feeling, this is a deep, 
abiding joy. This is a peaceful contentment that we have. What is Jesus saying? The people who live this kingdom life experience true happiness. Why? Because it is only in the kingdom that we get to walk in God's best for us. So let me ask you this question. Do you believe God's design for your life is what is best for you? Is God's best what is best? If that's true, that is only attained in the kingdom of God. But when you attain it, you get to walk in an uncommon happiness. Why? Because in the kingdom, God shapes my heart. He starts shaping my heart for new things. He starts giving me new desires. He starts giving me new taste and new flavors for him. He starts changing what I treasure. He starts changing and shaping what I value. He, stops, he starts shaping the priorities of my life different so that I find deep, abiding, meaningful joy and contentment and satisfaction in him. Do you know that Jesus prayed to God that we would have the same joy he has with the Father? Did you know Jesus prayed that prayer for you? He prayed that for us. Why does it matter? Because the joy Jesus had in his Father was perfect. There was nothing lacking in it. And Jesus said, Father, give them that joy. As you feel me, make their joy complete. Well, how do we have that life? If you're already there, I need, we need to switch places. Because <laughs> I'm not there. But I want to be. I want God to be shaping my heart. I want him to take those things out of flavor of my mouth that are worth less, that are worth less than the heart of Jesus. I want him to give me new treasures. And I don't mean things I can hoard. I mean things I love. I want him to change what I value. I want him to change what I see. I want him to give me that uncommon happiness. That's what we have in the kingdom life. Over the next several weeks, we're going to unpack those first verses, uh, the Beatitudes, and discover what it means to be happy in God. So what, what do we do with this this morning? I think the first question I want to ask is the main question, and it's the most important question. We've acknowledged that we can't attain this life apart from Christ. We can't do it. So have you made Jesus the Lord of your life? Has your heart been transformed by the work of of Christ. See, some of us, I think, we're still trusting in other things to make us feel like we're okay in the kingdom. Some of us are trusting in that good versus bad ledger, right? If my good outweighs my bad, I'm going to be okay. Some of us are trusting in the fact that we were raised in a Christian home, and there's nothing wrong with that, but the fact that your grandfather was a deacon has no bearing on you in the kingdom. None. 
Some of you are trusting in the fact that you're a church member, that you come, that you participate, that you give, that you serve, that you lead, and all of that is great. Some of you are trusting in some words that you said as a child, and while that may have been the moment, I want to ask you this question. Not did you pray a prayer, not do you give your tithe, not do you serve, but this. Has Jesus changed your life? Has he made you new? Were you this, then you met Jesus, and now you're this, and you'll never be the same. Because if there hasn't been that moment for you where you can say, I recognized I was a sinner and I needed a Savior and I met Jesus and I haven't been perfect, but I have never been the same. (laughs) If you don't have that moment, I want you to hear me lovingly say, you are not in the kingdom. The kingdom is those who have been transformed by the person of Jesus. Well, Pastor Matt, what do I do if that's me? What do I do if I don't feel like I've had that moment where Jesus has changed my life? You do this. You say, today is going to be the day that I make Jesus the Lord. Because you see, you didn't come to that realization on your own. That's the work of the Holy Spirit moving in you and illuminating this need in your life. And in just a moment, we're going to stand and worship And our ministers are going to be sitting right down here on this front row. They're going to stand and worship with you. But if you need to do that, if you need to make Jesus the Lord of your life, here's what I'm asking you to do. Step out, come forward, and just come sit beside them. They're ready. They will sit with you and help you take that next step. Maybe this morning you would just acknowledge, Pastor, I've just been living a very common life. Just a very common life. Maybe you've gotten comfortable with sin in your life. Just comfortable with it. You've gotten comfortable with certain attitudes, those inward heart things. Maybe your confession would be, I manage the outside pretty good, but if people saw behind the curtain, I don't want anybody to see behind the curtain. If that's you this morning, maybe you just need to come and lay that down. Again, we'll be here to pray with you and to ask God to do that work in you. Our ministers are going to be on the front row here, and they would love to to do that. And so while Zach and the band leads, I want you to step out and come. Here's the last challenge I'm going to give you, and then we're going to worship. I'm asking every single one of us, every one of us, over the next week and in the weeks ahead, to read the entire Sermon on the Mount. Just read the whole sermon. It's three chapters in the book of Matthew. And I'm asking you to do more than read it. I'm asking that as you read it, I want you to linger there. I want you to ask the Lord before you ever crack his word open, God, would you speak to me in this most majestic message from the greatest preacher ever? Would you, would you illuminate it for me? Linger in his word. Listen for his voice. Sit and let the king of the kingdom share his heart. Let's pray. Father, we love you. End. God, like every one of those disciples and the thousands that sat around Jesus, we are hopeless apart from you. But God, you are the God of hope. And you have given us a living hope. You've made us alive because of Christ. And so, Father, we worship you. And right now, as we sing, 
God, I pray that you would move people from darkness to light. God, that right now the person who knows you have touched their heart to do this would courageously step out and come forward and let us take that step with them. God, help us to lay our burdens down, to stop trying to manage our sin and just put it before the feet of the king and trust that your imputed righteousness is what we need. So Holy Spirit, move this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name.